Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malchus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. A few episodes back, we had Megan Kufeld of NWEA and Emma Dorn of McKenzie on the show to talk about their work on COVID learning loss. For listeners who missed that episode, the short version is COVID learning loss isn't quite as bad as was initially projected, but it's still substantial. And while there's quite a bit of variation across grade levels, subjects, and demographics, the average student is months behind where they would have been if it weren't for the pandemic. So how do we make up that lost ground? Well, one idea that's gaining a lot of traction is tutoring. And that's a solution proposed by one of our guests today, Matt Kraft. He's an associate professor of education and economics at Brown University. Earlier this year, Matt co-authored a working paper titled a blueprint for scaling tutoring across public schools. Also joining us today is Josh Goodman, who's an associate professor of education and economics at Boston University. And he's the co-author of another recent working paper on tutoring titled, Kumon In, the recent rapid rise of private tutoring centers. Matt, Josh, welcome to the report card. Thanks for having us. Thanks. So before we get into tutoring as a potential solution to COVID learning loss, let's get a better picture of the tutoring landscape generally. And I'd kind of like to start with the supply side. So Josh, your recent paper tracked the expansion of private tutoring centers over the past couple of decades. Can you talk a little bit about the development of that industry and the sorts of services that they provide? Sure. So this all started when I was a PhD student in the mid-2000s at Columbia University in New York, I'd be walking around Manhattan and on nearly every street corner, I would see something like a Kumon Learning Center. And I had no idea what these things were because they did not exist when I was a kid. And I thought to myself, this seems interesting. It seems like there's some education going on in places that are not schools and someone should write a paper about this. And so 15 years later, I did, uh, which is roughly the amount of time it takes a typical academic to get their work done. So the basic idea is we got hold of a a neat data set that gave us the location of every after-school tutoring center in the country every year between 1997 and roughly the current day. So think of it like a digitized yellow pages. And what we were able to study was to watch the, the rise of these centers over the last couple of decades from about 3,000 after-school tutoring centers in the late 1990s across the US to more like 10,000 today. So they've tripled in number in the last couple of decades. And I wanna emphasize these centers like Kumon, Sylvan, Kaplan, Princeton Review are places where generally students come to study in small classes. It's not one-on-one tutoring for the most part. It's sort of small group, small class instruction that's designed to supplement or complement whatever is going on in schools. And the the personal angle on this for me is that we actually, prior to the pandemic starting, sent our three children to one of these tutoring center chains uh, here in Massachusetts known as the Russian School of Math. And part of our reason for doing so was that our children, particularly one of them, was not feeling terribly challenged by the curriculum he was facing in schools. And this was a great opportunity to do something, to invest a little time and money in him outside of school and get him that additional challenge to keep him learning. Let's talk about that demand side. What are the kind of folks who are accessing these centers? And that's a lot of growth. I mean, you're talking about 
3,000 when I went to high school, which Josh wasn't that long ago, uh, you know, and tripling by now. So um, who's mostly taking advantage of these centers? That's a great question. So what we found in our work was perhaps unsurprisingly, these centers are heavily concentrated in the highest income areas of the country. So more than half of them are located in sort of the t in places where income is in the top 20% of the nation, um, which is not so surprising given that they are costly. You need money to, to pay for them for the most part. Um, and so it seems like they tend to be used by high income parents who are either trying to push their kids farther along to challenge their kids in ways that maybe the schools are not challenging them or to help their kids who might be struggling with the curriculum that they're facing. And so we found that income is a big predictor of where these centers are located. But one really interesting other fact that we documented is that even conditional on income, if you just look at high income places, among the high income places in the country, the places that get the most tutoring centers tend to have really high concentrations of immigrant families and Asian American families. And that's something that I've personally observed uh, in the center where we send our own kids, that there is a heavy emphasis among families, uh, often from other countries, on particularly math education, often because many of the parents who come to this country have careers that are grounded in mathematics, or because uh, one theory, if you come from a country where English is not your first language, it becomes much easier to stand out in a subject like math rather than a, a, a sort of verbally intensive set of other subjects. So long story short, we see that the demand is coming from high income families and disproportionately from immigrant and Asian American families within that group. So Josh, that raises a question and I have Tom Loveless like whispering in my ear here where he's talked to me for years about how in South Korea, they have these hagwon cram schools where tutors can make big bucks. I mean, really, tons of money, like millions of dollars in, in, in the extreme cases. And these are advantaged families typically taking up these schools. And also in, in China, you have some of these well-to-do families in Shanghai that are spending irregular laborers' yearly wages on education. So I wonder how much we know about whether that relates to the relationship in America between Asian American populations and these centers. So I, I certainly think that a number of Asian countries already have a very strong tradition of these tutoring centers. So it's not so surprising that if those families then come to the U.S., they would look for those kind of services here. Um, I'll tell you that I once had a Ph.D. student who was from South Korea, and I asked him, how does South Korea do so well on these international exams when South Korean class sizes in school are twice the international norm, you know, 50 students in a classroom. I, I said, your teachers must have been very impressive. He said, no, 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 we just sleep through class all day long and then we learn everything in the tutoring centers after school. And so, you know, this is absolutely striking. And in some ways, what this means is that the US is just joining some of its international counterparts in a culture of additional investments in schooling that already exists in some of these other countries. I think it's a really interesting question about the extent to which demand for these services is driven by parental worries about admission to elite colleges. I think that probably is part of the story and it's something I hope to explore in later research. That's certainly part of what's driving the story in Korea and in China. Sure. Okay. So that's one picture. And then you talked about 
sort of sleeping through school and then making it up on the back end, which is sort of the idea for COVID when a lot of kids have had a rough year. And now maybe Matt Kraft, this tutoring option is a tool to catch them up. But I'm guessing that we're thinking about a slightly different kind of tutoring. Matt, before we get into sort of your vision and your blueprint for how this might work, can you talk about whether tutoring works and the context from which the research that suggests that it is based in? Is it this sort of uh, Kumon private center or is it different kinds of tutoring that has these favorable impacts on student learning? It's a great question. I think we can just look to the private market for our first data point on this. We wouldn't see 300% growth in these tutoring centers over the last several decades that Josh and his co-authors document if it weren't likely that tutoring meaningfully benefited kids in some way, whether that is narrowly about performance on academic tests or it's about kind of enjoying the experience of learning and being pushed, uh, it probably differs for different kids. But I think that's the first data point. And And it's important to note that because tutoring is really an industry that has evolved over time. And and now the norm is quickly shifting so that a lot of these private tutoring industries are going directly to the household by having tutors show up at their door. Uh, I actually did that moonlighting when I was a public school teacher to supplement my salary. Private tutoring where we would drive to very affluent communities with you know, gated entryways and and tutor kids in their own homes. Now, a lot of that has shifted online and and further expanded kind of access, but it doesn't change the price of admission. And so we're inherently in a context where those families who can afford these supplemental educational services like tutoring um, are increasingly taking advantage of it. And those who can't are being left out. And so the spirit of this blueprint that my co-author Grace Falcon and I developed was motivated not by the pandemic, although it it comes out in the context of the pandemic, it's motivated by the pre-existing inequities in our system that mean that some kids get individualized, personalized instruction and others don't. And back to your question, the evidence that is increasingly compelling and convincing that tutoring, when delivered in a high dosage framework, can meaningfully improve student achievement. We're talking about, on average, across over 100 rigorous randomized controlled trial studies, taking kids who are at approximately the 35th percentile of the distribution and moving them up to the 50th percentile. Now, these are smaller, kind of high-resourced more boutique tutoring programs that have been studied. But when you even take that into account and compare it to all the other types of interventions that folks like Josh and I study, it really shakes out as being a very compelling way to support and accelerate student learning. So we have a lot of reason to believe that tutoring works. And I'm sure that when you study these kinds of programs, one of the first stumbling blocks they run into is scaling up. So Matt, you've you've tackled the, here's a way where we might scale this up. And even if it could be useful in other contexts, there's a context now where there's a lot of room for growth. Map this out for me. What's the, you know, sort of thumbnail plan for how you might scale this up for public schools across the nation? 
So the first thing I want to say is even in the few months that have transpired since we put out this working paper, I've learned a tremendous amount about what's happening on the ground, the pitfalls of, of districts and schools in the vanguard of trying to implement this work, the kind of ways in which our vision may be misinterpreted for what it's doing. And so one of the things I think it's critical to emphasize as a starting point is if we're talking about implementing tutoring, are we talking about scaling it with a small S or with a capital S? Are we talking about 50,000 kids, 500,000 kids, 5 million kids, or every kid who's in a Title I school, you know, almost 25 million? And the choices we make about the scale that we're seeking to achieve fundamentally influence and shape the decisions we have to make about who should be the tutor and what should be the ratio of kids that work with an individual tutor and a number of other design factors that we have to grapple with. Our blueprint in a nutshell is a federally funded but locally designed and implemented bottom-up expansion over time of tutoring where districts partner with local providers, whether that be colleges, service organizations that draw upon AmeriCorps funding, or other community volunteers, retired teachers, even potentially peer tutors, students within the K-12 system, to deliver frequent tutoring with the same tutor integrated into the school day. Now, there's all kinds of obstacles to implementing that vision well, and I'm happy to get into those. But I think the idea here is that we've seen through past attempts to scale tutoring nationally under President Clinton with America Reads, under No Child Left Behind with Supplemental Educational Services, that when tutoring is ancillary outside of school, it's not coordinated with the instruction that's happening, it requires parents to go above and beyond to transport their kids there, that you end up finding low attendance and, frankly, underwhelming outcomes. It, it, it's interesting that you talk about how you build this in, because it does seem to me that if it's an add-on, there's, there's two problems with it. One is it can get neglected and be rolled back just by either lack of participation or engagement, but also that maybe some of the kids that might need it the most might not be that interested in taking it up. So in your discussions with districts, as far as building this on, it's another plank and they've already got a bunch of planks in their educational system. What are you hearing from folks that are discussing what it would take to try and put this into the existing sort of framework or grammar of, of schooling? Part of it is just about the dollars. We have to be transparent about the fact that unless we're exclusively staffing tutoring with volunteers, and even that alone isn't a costless intervention, you need money to fund the supervisors and coordinators and the materials and all the types of kind of infrastructure that tutors need to be successful. But I think that we're in a context now with the Biden administration and the passage of the recent stimulus bill that at least in the short term, there's an opportunity to experiment. But that comes with risks. The risks are that we implement this in a kind of rapid scale up ancillary way that then is ephemeral. And, and once the money dries up, we kind of say, well, that was a one-time intervention, we're done. 
And, and that's really, in my view, the antithesis of what our vision is. We, we want to ask, in 10 years from now, have we meaningfully increased the amount of individualized instruction that students receive as part of the public school system? That, that is how I think we should judge the success of tutoring. Now, when the rubber hits the road, it, there are real trade-offs here. If, if we don't want to actually extend the school day, which I think for a number of districts and schools who are kind of below the median average of what we'd expect of the length of a school day, maybe seven hours, then we're going to have to replace something. And what is that? I'm not going to stand here and say that we shouldn't have arts or physical education, or we should be taking kids out of their core academic classes. I think those are all really important. And so, you know, how do we think creatively about scheduling? And the pandemic has showed us that we can do that when, when we've been forced to. So I think there's an opportunity and a challenge there. And another piece of it is, you know, how do we avoid the pitfalls of the enthusiasm of the moment and then implementing it rapidly and then saying we need to evaluate it and not surprisingly, a lot of these first attempts are not going to go as well as we hoped and then becoming disillusioned and moving on to what we think might be the next silver bullet without giving this idea a time to make mistakes, to go through a process of continued improvement. And, and to come out better for having shared these learning experiences in a network of district implementers. So that all makes sense, Matt. Let me, let me turn to the next thing that I'm thinking about that you got to solve. If you're going to have a big tutoring program, I mean, even with 50,000 students, <laughs> you're going to need tutors. Josh, I'm just curious. Let's, let's say that with the funding that is coming to districts through the rescue plan that they wanted to go on the private market. I mean, how much supply is out there to meet the need that we might assume would be coming out of the pandemic? And what kind of people work at the tutoring centers that are already set up? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Let me let me admit that I, I don't have a sense of if there are 10,000 tutoring centers, what fraction of the potential demand could that help meet? Uh, so I, I'm not going to take a guess at that. But what I will say is, I don't think it would be crazy to sort of use those centers as a potential source of tutors. Now, I think the challenge is many of these centers work on their own sort of proprietary curricular models. And, you know, they've got adults trained to teach with a certain set of materials like Kumon or in my kid's case, the Russian School of Math. And I think in the kind of program that Matt's talking about, it's not clear that you would want for those individuals to keep teaching their proprietary model. You presumably want some more, something a little more general that applies to all the kids in a given district or state. But I don't think it would be crazy to potentially tap some of those adults for whom I suspect tutoring is actually not necessarily a full-time job in many cases. So just, you know, just as one example, a lot of these centers primarily work in after-school hours. And so my guess is that many of the employees between nine and three are not working, or at least not working in tutoring jobs. And so there may be some sort of excess capacity there that could be tapped in addition to whatever other sets of folks one might find for tutors. But I think it would be it would be interesting to think about whether that expertise could be leveraged as part of this plan. I don't think it would be capable of sort of absorbing the entirety of the, the plan that Matt's talking about. Yeah. So so Matt, you're talking about a big plan and the possibility of rolling it out. 
where are you looking to find tutors? Let me first make clear that when we talk about we there's a tutoring program and it needs, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of tutors. We're not talking about a monolithic national tutoring program. I think there are proposals out there. And I think even I have kind of brainstormed what that might look like, kind of expanding AmeriCorps. But we have to remember that AmeriCorps itself is not this kind of centralized thing. It's just federal grants for these local and state entities to fund service members, young, often college graduates to work in service. And so what we're talking about here is is really a kind of constellation of local tutoring models that I hope then are working through a centralized kind of partnership and network to share best practices and learn and, and, and build an infrastructure of what materials and training tutors need. But where we find folks for this? Well, I think we can start by saying, well, data suggests that AmeriCorps receives almost three to one in terms of applicants per available spots. It's, it's a couple of years old and a lot of things have changed, but I think there's excess demand. I mean, you look at the applications for Teach for America, which traditionally have been far exceeding the number of spots. So I think there's interest for service. And I also think that we undervalue the potential role of federal work study. There's hundreds of thousands of students who currently are working in federal work study positions, um, some of which are already tutoring that we might try to more strategically leverage to partner with local school districts. And so I think those are two sources. And then frankly, although there's less empirical evidence uh, both for or against, it's, it's a bit mixed in the small body of literature that exists around the efficacy of peer tutoring. You know, there are about 10 million plus ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th graders in public schools in our country. That's a pretty big supply of folks that even if a very small fraction were interested in doing kind of an elective around tutoring community service, which is often required for tutoring, that we might potentially benefit from in, in integrating into a tutoring model. Right. So you're talking a lot of this supply might be able to be met by undergraduate students and high school students, even for students that they could tutor, that they'd have mastery over the subject matter there. And that's the spirit of why our vision is to say, hey, let's take high schoolers and match them with younger elementary school students. So it's more likely that they've mastered that content. And let's take college students and pair them with middle school students, and let's take college graduates and pair them with high schools, kind of that rolling pairing of increased likelihood of content mastery. Now, of course, there's going to be college graduates that aren't able to support kids in their BC calculus class. We, we're not naive to that, but I think it's just a, a, a general blueprint to work with, and every local district will have to kind of do that matching in a way that, that makes sense. But let me also emphasize that tutoring need not be narrowly about core content and academics. I mean, we can, and I think I've increasingly moved in this direction after talking to a lot of tutoring and mentoring programs that tutoring has a great potential to provide for a important connection with an older peer, a young adult who's navigated the process of K-12 education and who can provide for mentorship and uh, be a role model. It isn't guaranteed. That doesn't just happen kind of automatically when you set up a, 
a tutor-student pairing, but I don't think we should underappreciate the value of those types of structures for supporting students to feel like they belong in school and that they are able to meet the expectations that they have from their teachers and to have someone who they could just connect with on a, on a personal level. Yeah, especially after a sort of lonely year for a lot of students, that could be a marked benefit. So Matt, I could see some, let's say, unsympathetic listeners saying, oh, you know, there's so many reasons why this isn't practical. It's not going to happen. You can't change the way schools are run. High school students can't do it. So there may be some headwinds to doing this, and it's always hard to doing something new, but there's also some tailwinds, right? I mean, what are some of the things that right now make this a, a potential time when something like this could get off the ground that would certainly have been absent, I don't know, uh, before last March? I think the skepticism and criticism of this type of vision or idea is really welcome because what's at stake is frankly the way in which we educate our kids and how we spend kind of scarce resources in public education. That said, we are, I think, at an opportune time in the context that the pandemic has forced us to recognize that very decentralized bureaucratic public schools can, when forced, make rapid and massive changes to their organizational structures and how we deploy teachers in an everyday context. And so I think it, it has shown us that we are capable of much more than we thought possible. I think we would have dismissed this kind of out of hand um, were it not for the context of the pandemic. I think it's also kind of heightened the need to be more ambitious about what we provide within the context of public education, because we know that the need is even that much greater. It was already glaringly inequitable before the pandemic in terms of students' opportunities to learn. And the pandemic has only accentuated those inequities. And so this is not a silver bullet. This needs to be something that local districts decide if that works for them. But there are federal resources now that could support those who are interested in doing it. And there are folks who have gotten out in the vanguard to do this before those resources were available. So it, it suggests that there's real demand on the ground. Yeah, and there is that boatload of money that districts are getting. I mean, there's a ton of money going to districts. That helps. You know, it's one of these things where in a lot of school districts, they're, they have a problem now that they may have never had before, which is we have a lot of resources and we need to figure out what we're going to do with it. And, and so that seems to me to be a, a pretty good headwind for something uh, new and, and, and ambitious. But Josh, I want to ask you, it seems to me that tutoring in many ways widens gaps. Historically, it sounds like at least from the Kumon centers and other things like that, not to put a, a bad name on Kumon, but a lot of their customers are relatively well off. They're often pushing their students further and higher rather than doing sort of more remedial work. And so I got to tell you, some of my fear about sort of supercharging this system is, could it work to widen gaps in ways that maybe five years from now are like, oh, maybe that wasn't the, the greatest idea. And if that's the case, what should we be thinking about uh, and what should districts be thinking about when they're sort of looking forward at maybe this is a project that we should do, but, you know, where are the landmines? 
Um, I think right now it's an open empirical question about whether the existing tutoring center system has exacerbated inequality. It's actually something that I hope to be working on in this coming year. But I think of tutoring as it's another form of educational technology. And like all technologies, people who can afford it benefit from it. And those who don't, don't. And so I think the, the nice thing about the kind of proposals that Matt is talking about is that I think built into this is the notion that there is going to be money to pay for this technology precisely for the students who can't pay for this stuff on their own, right? So families like mine who have access to these after-school tutoring centers, honestly, we're not so worried about how our kids have been doing this past year, both because our schools and our home lives have been relatively functional um, and because my kids have been doing online versions of these things all year long. And so I think what's great about the, you know, the, the student proposal from Matt and his team is precisely that it's designed to specifically bring this technology to a much wider group of students than would otherwise get it. And I'll just also add, you know, one, one sort of maybe bonus of this that, that Matt hasn't discussed, you know, one of the things I worry a lot about is our teacher workforce has been through a really rough year and a lot of folks I know are absolutely exhausted. And there's, there is an ability for a proposal like this by bringing more bodies into the school to alleviate some of that exhaustion. In, in other words, that there may be times of the school day that, that some of these tutors may be able to take students off of teachers' hands and, and provide them even more intense attention than they would otherwise get. And I think that actually may have some benefits in the long run to helping teachers sort of maintain their energy levels and stick around in the profession. Matt, do you have any thoughts on ways that you might set this up in order to cut off any gap widening tendencies before they develop? I think the concern is real. We should be clear that if school districts essentially are saying, we are gonna provide the option for you to take advantage of tutoring, you can do it after school and in the context of your own home, that all the evidence we have suggests that that will widen inequality. Differential access to internet-enabled devices and Wi-Fi and parental support and opt-in versus opt-out approaches to enrolling in educational services. And so I think to get ahead of that, we need to be thinking about this in the context of Tutoring isn't something that you add on for some kids. It's just a class. It's just, you go from art to science to tutoring. And that leaves a lot of open questions about what the curriculum is for tutoring. And I think that's an area where like, people, frankly, are really working hard to try to figure out how do we structure time in a proactive way? This isn't the kind of homework help after school type thing that a lot of us think of when we say, hey, tutoring that really is kind of taking care of the after-school time for working parents. It's about rigorous one-on-one -on -one instruction that is aligned to what's happening in the classroom. And so part of what I think we need to do is we need to galvanize kind of the collective support of school and district leadership and, and all parents in the community to say, we are going to adjust schedules, think about buses, think about sports, because this is something that we're all going to potentially benefit from. And that's a polemic suggestion, because I think with scarce resources, a lot of academics and practitioners can rightly argue, no, we should be narrowly targeting tutoring to only those kids that are some, you know, threshold of 
years or months of learning kind of behind where we think they should be. And there's trade-offs there. And I think you can have totally reasonable debates about that. But I'm, I'm pessimistic about the organizational change that will happen when tutoring is only targeted to a select set of students rather than something that is a school-wide feature of what we are integrating into how we deliver public education. So that makes sense to me. I guess I want to round this out with the question I've been asking a lot lately uh, when it comes to questions about change in COVID, right? I mean, on the one hand, you could say we're, we're destined to see tons of change because COVID has upset the apple cart and schools are going to be changed forever. And I can see that. I can also see a whole bunch of people next October saying, give me normalcy, take me back to the before times and let's just keep doing that. So in that context, just make a prediction, both of you, how big of an expansion of tutoring programs and not the Kuman type, but more the, the public school type that, that has some money and has some demands, how much growth in those programs do you expect to see next year? Matt, you want to make this prediction first? Feels high stakes, but I like it. All right. So my prediction is that within a year or two, you know, we're going to see tutoring expand substantially, but what tutoring means, it's going to look so radically different across contexts. Like once a week with a volunteer that changes all the time versus, you know, part of the school day, multiple times a week with the same tutor who's coordinating with the teacher. I also think that it's going to underwhelm, frankly. It's not going to come even within like a, a fraction of these very impressive effects that we find in research studies. And so we should be clear-eyed about that. And the question then is, what do we do? Do we cut and run? Do we identify the kind of positive outlier case studies and learn from them? Do we invest in continuous improvement? And, and that's going to determine whether or not the answer to my question what is it going to look like 10 years from now is that was a flash in the pan or that was part of an incremental investment in making individualized instruction equitable and accessible to all students in the U.S. All right, Josh. Yeah, my fear about this is that, you know, watching how schools struggled in the pandemic to change their schedules and adapt their staffing needs, it seemed to me like there was huge variation in which schools were able to adapt to these changed circumstances. And my fear is that the schools that are gonna be best able to incorporate an additional element like tutoring into this new mix are precisely the ones that already have handled the pandemic better. And so I do think a focus of any of these programs has to be on you know, whatever it takes to make it dead simple to use this technology. And I don't know what that means from school to school. I don't know if that means making it simple to schedule or making it simple to find the tutors, but I think anything that makes this complicated to incorporate into a new kind of school day is going to exacerbate precisely the inequalities that widened during COVID. All right, well, I think we're gonna see more of this in the coming years if for no other reason, there's a lot of resources out there and this is a leading option for it. And Matt, I, I, I look forward to uh, you and Josh measuring those effects. And maybe in a couple uh, of years after this gets fully baked, you can come back on the report card and, and, and tell us how we did on the tutoring front. And that'll be about 15 years from now, as Josh pointed out. <laughs> exactly. 15 years. That's the, that's the timeline. 
Start the clock. Start the clock. I'm telling my producer, start the clock now. Matt, Josh, thanks for coming on the report card. Thank you so much. A lot of fun. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening to the report card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guests, Matt Kraft and Josh Goodman. We'll include links to their working papers in today's show notes. I also want to thank our producer, Matt Rice. He makes this podcast possible. Remember, you can subscribe to the report card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, take a minute and leave a review. It helps other folks find the show. Send us your comments, questions, and topic suggestions at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malthus.